All right, gang, you ready for this uh, exercise tonight? Adam's ready. Are any of the rest of you right now? <laughs> tonight, uh, we're looking really at the conquest, and we're covering a whole bunch of scripture, two and a half chapters tonight. And there's a reason for it, and that is that this uh, really is a summary, and it's a summary of the conquest of the southern uh, battles that Joshua undertakes and the northern battles and a list of all of these kings. And it's rather like the book of Numbers uh, in that regard. It's extremely important for a handful of things, but relative to spiritual application, it's a little thin in that regard to us in the age of grace. And so I want to do it honor by covering all of it, but I also want to cover it for the purpose for which it was intended. It was a historical record, so that the children of Israel could look back. Joshua has the scribes write all this stuff down so they could say, Look, we took that land. Look, we took that land. We conquered that king in Jesus' name, or in that time, in the name of the Lord God, Jehovah. But they conquered that land. You see, the promised land was very specific, as it was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so as Moses then brought them to the edge at Kadesh Barnea, and they did not go in, they kind of abandoned that part to go back to wandering in the wilderness. And so now they've come into the land, they've crossed over the Jordan River, they've conquered Jericho, they've conquered Ai, they're going to go on now and conquer, they've conquered Gibeon, they're going to go on and conquer Gilgal and Lachish and all these cities that were inhabited by the Canaanites all the way up to the region of Dan. And so as we look at it tonight, we're going to take it as a whole. And, and I hope and pray uh, that we can, we can take it tonight in a way that's meaningful for us, and I believe we can. So I've got a little tiny detour uh, that we're going to take in the middle of tonight's message on a subject near and dear to all of your hearts, and that is the Nephilim. The, the sons of Anak, the giants in the land. So I, I want to dispel a couple of myths with that tonight. So it's a good little sidetrack because they're mentioned here uh, and they're going to get conquered as well. And so it's very important that we see them for who they are. And so we'll uh, talk a little bit about those guys tonight. In the meantime, let's offer up the evening to the Lord and ask him to bless us. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And Lord, as you... I uh, have instructed us, uh, we're not to abandon one yacht, one tittle. We're not to skip over it, God. For all of your word is for the purpose for which you have sent it and intended it. Uh, Lord, it is by your word uh, that we gain knowledge of faith. And so uh, we pray that you would speak to us as your people tonight. Bless us as we read it. May we glean some spiritual truths from this passage of Scripture uh, that is really a record of the great victories which you wrought in the promised land uh, through Joshua and through the children of Israel. So we give it to you. Bless us, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it begins this way, picking back up in verse 28 in chapter 10, and we're going to continue on all the way through chapter 12. And on that day, Joshua took Makekah, and struck it with its king by the edge of the sword. And you're going to see something very, very similar throughout the remaining part of this particular chapter. It's he slaughtered this group, 
He killed that group. He bashed this group. He defeated that group. He walloped this group. Uh, he slayed a whole bunch of people by the edge of the sword. And so it's extremely important for you to understand that this is not something we want to transmit into our modern day and time. Because God has not called children of grace to go out and take people by the throat and beat them into submission. We're not to take the gospel by force. And unfortunately, the Crusades were founded largely on passages of Scripture like this, where well, maybe intentioned people thought that they could spread the gospel of grace by going and forcing people by the edge of the sword to either commit or to be killed. That is not what this passage teaches. So there's one lesson you can learn. So don't grab your neighbor and say, look, convert or die. Muslims do that, okay? Christians do not do that. So make sure you get that distinction from the very uh, inception here tonight. And you'll notice he utterly destroyed them and all the people who were with with it. And none remained. And so he also did to the king of Mekekah. And as he has done to the king of Jericho, and then Joshua passed from Mekekah down to all, with all Israel to, to him with, to Libna, and they fought against Libna, and the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel, and he stuck, struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, and let none of them remain. But this he also did as he had done to the king of Jericho, and so you can see the repeat here. And Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, And they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done at Libna. And then Horam, the king of Gezer, and that's not, you know, the head old guy, uh, came up to help at Lachish. He wasn't the king of the Gezerites or anything like that. He was just a king named Gezer. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left him, and none were remaining. And from Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all of Israel with him. And they encamped against it and fought against it. And they took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all the people who were in it were utterly destroyed that day, according all that he had done to Lachish. And so you can see the repeating process. He goes into one city, destroys it, destroys the king. Very important part of the process, because if you leave leadership intact, guess what they'll do? They'll go find a new group of people to install right back into their way of thinking. So God was very specific here. Make sure that you deal with leadership. Because they're the ones that have the capacity to grab the common people, gather them together, and then send them back into this uh, Canaanite lifestyle. And so as he goes on and continues, and they, they then, so Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king, and all of its cities, and all the people who were in it, and he left none remaining according to all that he had done in Eglon and then utterly destroyed it with all the people who were in it. And it's pretty gruesome, as you can see. Basically, there's not a whole lot of people left. And we're going to look at a map in just a second, and you'll see this is quite a large geographic area. Uh, it's thousands of square miles, ultimately, that have been captured. Uh, it, is, it is a very, very, very decisive battle that Joshua is undertaking with the children of Israel. And so Joshua returned with all of Israel, in verse 38, with him to Debir, 
and they fought against it, and he took it and its king, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it, and left none of them remaining, as he had done at Hebron. So he did to Debir, to its king, as he had done at Libna, and to its king. And so Joshua conquered all the land. And here, here comes the, the important part in these verses. Joshua, for the first time, is being 100% obedient to the things that the Lord has told him. And so there is a spiritual lesson there, that we as God's children need to be 100% obedient to the things that the Lord tells us. Now, I doubt very seriously that anyone in this room has heard from the Lord to go out and conquer Arrow Bear and slay all the people who are in it and its king. Yeah, I don't think that's happened. Haven't called you to go to San Bernardino and conquer all of its people and slay them by the edges of the sword and its king. So we're not talking about that kind of obedience because we live now in an age of grace that has been paid for by the blood of Christ. But it is talking about the obedience that we ought to have to God himself through his revealed word. So all of the principles contained within his word that apply to us today, we are absolutely to be obedient to if we want God's very best for us. Now, me, I want God's very best for me. And sometimes that's hard because I'm a knucklehead. And so when I hear things that I don't like in God's word, and believe it or not, there are some things I don't like in God's word. There are a handful of things just like, oh, why does it say that? Like, be kind to those who persecute you and spitefully use you. I'm not really big on people who persecute me. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things that's, it kind of grates against you. Amen? You know, there are probably some things in there that you don't like. Maybe you've got a favorite non-likable passage that you have in the Bible. You still need to be obedient to 100% of what Scripture says if you want God's very best. Otherwise, let me share with you, it leaves a weakness in your life. I don't like weaknesses in my life because eventually the enemy is able to come around from behind the hill and he creeps right into that area of my life and is able to use that weakness against me. So Joshua is not leaving any weakness. He's saying, look, we're going to do it right this time. And verse 40 says, and so Joshua conquered all the land. Now, did he conquer absolutely every person? Did he slay every man, woman, child? Probably not. I think it's very tough to, to portray that picture by reading your Bible. But sufficient is the amount of victory that has been won and fought for that it is 100% of the land. It would be like someone attacking the United States. They're not going to have to kill every last one of us, but they certainly are going to have to take our major cities and absolutely dismantle our military infrastructure, likely take care of almost all of the leadership. That would have to happen. And so I think we can safely say that probably not every single person was killed. Because here's why I say that. There were innocents in the land, and God has always taken care of innocent people. And so if there were people that were genuinely for Jehovah God, and they happened to live in Lachish, I'm pretty certain that God in his sovereign plan found a way for them to not be in the city when Joshua attacked. And so I think we need to be careful as to how far we stretch some of the things that we read in Scripture. And so the mountain country and to the south and all of the lowland to the wilderness slopes and all of their kings 
and he left none remaining but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And again, you can kind of see what it says. I believe that to take that to an absolute literal sense is probably a stretch, but I do believe that the battle was absolutely decisive. And so if they were evil and breathed, I think that's what we get from this passage. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea. Now remember, that's where they failed to go in. Amen? Really important that you get that particular part of this that they absolutely went back where they failed and now have victory. It's important in our lives that we go back where we have failed and gain victory. And so it goes on to say, in all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon, and the kings in their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned with all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And so here we have this record. Uh, and you can see here I've kind of divided it up. You have this northern cities. You have the southern cities. And you have the names of the kings uh, that were taken care of. And we'll cover those all here in a little bit. But as you look at this map up here, and I know it's kind of hard to see, but what happens as you look at it, if you look in the southern campaign, which is on this side, you can actually see that they basically went from city to city to city. So they go from Lachish up to Libna, down to Eglon, back to Lachish, to Hebron, to, to Debir, and then they ultimately come over to this map, which is the northern territories, and they travel up. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea, which is about 45 miles long. So you can see this is not a small area, and that's the city of Jerusalem right there. So basically they liberated the area around the holy city, Jerusalem. So as far as Joshua is concerned, not only is he preserving the land that, that contains the city where the temple is, but he's, he's obliterating uh, the enemy. It's interesting to me that ultimately Gaza, which is over here, and that is the same Gaza as in Gaza today, is going to be the last place that they're going to conquer, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So in the northern campaign, you can kind of see we've got these arrows that are in here, and basically same thing from Shimron all the way up to, to Hazor, and they defeat all of the northern kingdom. So to give you a, a picture of this, up here is Mount Hermon. Next to it, the city of Dan would be about right there. The Jordan River flows out of the area of Dan, down into the Sea of Galilee, uh, or excuse me, the, the Lake of Genezareth, down to the Sea of Galilee, and then ends up in the Dead Sea over here. So basically everything that is modern-day Israel, I, I want you to notice this, is taken by Joshua. Now, let me help you modernize that for just a second before we move on. So when you look at this map today, the West Bank, guess what, is this part right here. That's all been given back to their enemy. Gaza Strip, given back to the enemy. Golan Heights, given back to the enemy. So much of the area that Joshua conquered, that they fought for, liberated, destroyed the kings in 1967, 1972, was given back to the enemy. Can anybody say bad idea? Bad idea. Why? Because it was God's land. God gave it to the children of Israel. They took the battle to the enemy, fought, won, did what they were supposed to do, and then they undid what they did. 
It's always a bad idea when you've had a victory to go back and release that conquered ground back to the enemy. That's why people with problems with alcohol better stay out of bars. If you've got a problem with the Internet, stay off the Internet. If you've got an issue in your life with money, you probably shouldn't visit casinos. You understand what I'm saying? When you've been delivered from something in your life, the last thing you want to do is go turn it over to the enemy. Because then the enemy is, guess what? In the case of Gaza, there's Jerusalem. Now you know why when they fire rockets from Gaza, why they're very concerned. Tel Aviv is actually way up there. And you remember rockets were hitting in Tel Aviv. So it's important that you understand the size of this area for it to be defensible. When we think of a defensible space, something that can be defended, the last thing you want to do is pop the enemy right here. I mean, it li- literally, the enemy, as far as Israel is concerned, modern Israel, is all the way around Jerusalem on the east side. The enemy is below Israel uh, on, on the west side, and the enemy is above Israel on the north side. So they have basically turned over uh, all of the lands that are the defensible high ground. That's the defensible high ground. Mount Hermon's over 10,000 feet high. Uh, they've turned over the access areas between there and their enemies, which are over here in Syria and Jordan. And they've turned, turned over an area of the coast over here. So... This is important in that sense to us, because when we look at modern Israel, we can now understand when our president's saying, well, you need to give them more land. That's insane. The distance between Jerusalem and the tip of the Dead Sea right there is 22 miles. So what are you going to give up? If you give up half of it, you've got 10 miles left between Jerusalem and basically Jericho would have been right there as well. So it's super important for us today to realize they won the war. It was supposed to stay that way. Amen? It gives a little bit of the, the historical background. And so I want to talk to you just a little bit. Three things that stand out here. Number one, it said multiple times, it was the Lord who gave them the victory. It was obvious that, as we saw in the very beginning of this book, Joshua was a great military leader, no doubt had now a fast-moving army that worked by dividing and conquering. They went in, they took the land, they took the king, they made sure there was no chance that there was going to be a rebellion when they left. So those things are true, but it was the Lord that gave the victory. Uh, Joshua obeyed the Lord by utterly destroying the enemy. And so they, they could not destroy uh, just just as Moses, they, they, they kind of had to work with Gibeon, remember, because they made a covenant with them. So uh, there was a couple of problems, but largely it was a solid military defeat. And then the second thing that we're not really told here, but when you look at it, this is actually a period of seven years. We just read through it in ten minutes, but it was seven years. And so what you just heard described was a very hard, long battle that they engaged in over a long period of time. Think of your own life in spiritual warfare. It's going to be a hard, long battle. And there are going to be fortified cities all along the way, and you're going to need to go in the strength of the Lord and make sure that you fight as God has told you to fight. You can't give up because you've just taken part of it. You need to secure the victory by doing all that the Lord has told you to do. And so we need to be faithful in that battle. I'm sure after a couple of cities, word got out that, hey, Joshua's coming. So maybe some of these battles were easier than others. The same is true in our own lives. 
but it's going to take a while. You're not going to have instantaneous victory. The reason we know it took that long, uh, when you look at this whole story, basically we, we know that uh, basically Caleb was 40 years old uh, when they crossed over uh, into the Jordan, in the Jordan rather, he was 38 years old. So by now he's like 85 years old. So these are a bunch of old guys who have kind of been with, remember it was Joshua and Caleb at Kadesh Barnea, right? That was 40 years earlier. And so now they've come in and fought all these battles. These are, these are very aged men who have seen it through. They've continued the battle. So remember that when you think about your own life. And so a little bit of a break here, and, and I want to talk to you just a little bit, because there are a lot of fanciful stories about the Nephilim. And I'll remind you that the New King James has that word, the Hebrew word Nephilim, correctly translated. It comes from the Hebrew word Nephal, and it simply means giant. And so there are those who kind of look at these words and they go, well, this, who are the sons of God? Are they, are they demonic angels? You know, what are they? And so I want to kind of clear a few of those things up because there's a lot of folks wandering around going, well, I think that, you know, there were angels that came down and they had sexual relations with, you know, the women that were on the earth, and that's what produced the Nephilim. Scripture does not support that view, just so you know. It's fairly clear from the language that's used uh, that, that these people were just simply a race of giants, and we're going to find out a little tiny tidbit of information uh, that almost proves that to us categorically when we get uh, into the other couple of chapters tonight. So the, the Anakim who are mentioned here, and they're not going to be in chapter 11, were a race of giants. And they, remember there were two believing spies. Remember that part from Joshua and Caleb's uh, trip there in Numbers chapter 13? Uh, they went to spy out the land. There's a group of spies, there's ten of them who go, yeah, we're not going in there because there's giants in the land. Uh, they were the sons of Anak. And so uh, that word that's translated and used to describe them was Nephal. And so some people, especially the King James, is one of the reasons that I don't personally use the King James, there are words that are translated in the King James that are still incorrect. And Nephilim is one of them. It should be translated giants if you're going to translate it into English, not Nephilim like they're some kind of mystical being, uh, because it was very clear that they were just simply really large people. And so when you read the Genesis flood account uh, in chapter 6, uh, let's look at that together. If you turn there to chapter 6, verse 1, and it begins this way, And now it came about when men were beginning to multiply on the face of the land, Daughters were born to them, and that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whoever they chose. And when the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, nevertheless, in these days there shall be 120 years. And so this is the whole period of the, the ark being built. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that they bore children to them. And it appears to me that in the original language, it's talking about two different peoples. It's not talking about the Nephilim and the sons of God being some type of angelic being. It's literally talking about men who happen to be walking on the face of the earth, whom God, of course, calls all of us as people. Amen. And so he goes on to say this, and those were mighty men, and notice he uses the word man, that's correctly translated, and it means literally mankind. There were mighty men of renown, of old, of renown, 
And when the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was evil only continually. And you know the rest of the story. And so you have this group of people. Now, this passage describes the Nephilim as being men twice, uses two different words. And the good thing here is he also does not use words that would relate to angels because there's only three of them that we have translated into English, and it's always translated either angel, cherubim, or seraphim. So they're not called angels in any way, shape, or form. Not good angels, not bad angels. They're simply called men. And so it, it, it appears that when you look at this passage of Scripture, uh, these verses are very obscure, and it is also interesting that the Nephilim are descended from, they're not being described as descended from anybody, so they seem to be a unique race of people. Uh, and so the, the direct correlation between this group of people and some half-angelic being is non-existent in Scripture. And in fact, it doesn't come from Scripture at all. It comes from the Apocrypha, and specifically a couple of Apocryphal books that the Catholics do not even include in their Bible. Uh, it comes from the book, uh, basically the book of Enoch and the book of Jubilees. And so if you get out a Catholic Apocryphal book, they usually leave those out. And there, the Nephilim are described as being fallen angels. So this is actually does not come from Scripture, and yet there are a lot of Christians who keep passing it around, that these fallen angels who were giants came and had relations with some women who were on the earth, and from that, uh, here, here comes this race. It does not appear to be supported by Scripture. So who were they? Jesus kind of gives us a little bit of insight, because if you remember, he said... In Luke chapter 24, and we'll get there eventually. And Jesus is speaking. He says, while he's saying these things, he stood to himself and said, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened because they thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you so troubled? Why do you doubt in your heart? See my hands and my feet that I myself touch and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he gives us a little insight into the spirit world that... Actual spirit beings remain spirit, irregardless of whether they appear to someone as a man. In other words, if you were to touch what you think is a spirit, your hand would probably go right through them. They're not material. They dwell in a world that we cannot see normally, and so if you were to see a demon or if you were to see an angel, you would also see a being that does not have a body like yours. And so... I, I kind of want to put to rest the whole thing that people wander around the church saying, well, you know, I think there were half demon, half person people. Uh, it, it, scripture doesn't support that. If you remember, there were only eight people that were saved, regardless of the movie Noah, which only shows uh, a few less than that. There's actually, I think, only six in that movie that are actually survived the whole flood. But the Nephilim, I believe, were nothing more than corrupt, strong men who were giants. Uh, they continued evil only, and they're described after the flood. They were also described then as evil. And interestingly enough, uh, in Joshua's victory over the Anakim, which we're going to get to shortly, uh, we're going to find that they were in the land of, guess what, Gaza. Anybody tell me where Goliath came from? The land of Gaza. And so it appears likely that Goliath himself was probably one of the descendants of the Anakim uh, who survived after the flood. Okay, so there you go. A little, let's take a break from these long lists of people who died. Amen? Now, as we continue onward, 
Were they demonic? I don't believe so. I think they were just very large people. Um, daughters of men appear to me to be nothing more than those who were born uh, to, to either Cain or Abel, ultimately Seth, once uh, Abel was killed. And so, moving on. So like Goliath, yeah, and Kim were likely just big old farm boys with a really bad attitude. Verse 1, chapter 11, as we move on and try and take these next two chapters in our remaining time. And it came to pass that when Jabin, Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashpath, and to the kings who were in the north, in the mountains, in the plain of Chenareth, and in the lowland, to the heights of Dor, and to the west. And the Canaanites to the east and the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, all the sites, and the Izzites, the mountains, the Hivites, below Hermon. So now you can see why I showed you that map. So when you look at that region of the world, we're talking about all the way to Mount Hermon. If you go to Mount Hermon today, it is a common point between the nation Israel and the nation Syria. And so it sits directly on the border. In fact, there are competing intelligence command posts on the top of Mount Hermon because it is the highest mountain in the region. So you can see that when Joshua took care of it, he actually took care of it all the way uh, to the region of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And so they went out and all of their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is in the seashore in the multitude. And obviously that is a huge extrapolation of a number. And that's why I believe that also we can look at, did they kill every last child? Probably not. Did they kill every woman? Probably not. Did they kill every man? Probably not. But most absolutely and sufficiently to gain the victory so that there would be no issues ever again, that is for certain. Joshua conquered the land that was given to them, all of the land, with very many horses and chariots. And it goes on to say, And when these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And so this is this is this campaign uh, that encompasses uh, the northern kings. And so they, they gather together. And remember that the north has a strategic advantage. When you look at Israel today, uh, if you hear the, the total conquest of the south, which has already happened, the total conquest of the north, they come together. They figured that the, the mass of numbers is going to be sufficient to defeat Israel. Um, that didn't work then. It also did not work in 1967. It did not work in 1972. It's not going to work in totality ever again, even though it's going to look like it's going to work even during the tribulation. And so Israel is a smaller force. This is a superior force. This huge army is assembled. And the strategic advantage is this, is as you travel up the Jordan River Valley and you go towards Mount Hermon, from which actually the snows of Hermon seep into the ground. They come out at the springs of Dan, and as the main tributary of the Jordan River, that flows into the Jordan. As you look at that area, that's the high ground. And so this is these guys are gathered on the high ground, and here comes Joshua and all of his men right smack dab up the middle of the Jordan River Valley, and most of us would consider that a strategic disadvantage. And because God was for them, they actually win this battle. The northern kings heard about all the successes. And, and, and I, want to, I want to remind you that when 
your successes are heard about by the enemy, when you're revived in your spirit, when you say, you know, yes, Lord, I'm going to go out and do this thing, count on the enemy massing attack against you, massing an attack against you. He's going to turn up the heat. That's what he's always done. And so when you gain a victory in your life, you can count on the enemy going, mm, now we got to knock him down now because if we don't take care of him now, we may not ever take care of him. That is true also in our lives today. Uh, there's two things that, that kind of indicate how Israel is now facing these challenges uh, that they had really never faced before. And one is the size of the army. As many people as the sands of the sea. That's a lot of people. Remember, that was to be what would happen ultimately uh, as a result of Abraham's offspring being blessed. They would multiply that way. But literally, the enemy has multiplied that way. And they're now arrayed against the children of Israel. And a second thing is technological superiority. You'll, you'll notice that the children of Israel do not have horses. They do not have chariots. They were at a technological advantage. And so sometimes are we when we're in our fight against the world. We're at a technological disadvantage. And here's why. We don't work the same way the world works. The world has tools at its disposal that we will not pick up. They will use lying, and they will use deceit, and they will use hate, and they will use anger. They use things that we should not use. And so in some ways, the world and its system, in a practical sense, is superior. That's why we need the Lord. Who did Joshua need? He needed the Lord. The Lord fought the battle. That is why they won. So you with the Lord defeats any enemy. You without the Lord are in big trouble because the enemy is wily. He's crafty. He, he has massive numbers and he has technological superiority still to this day against you alone. Against the Lord, not so much. He's a defeated foe. Amen? That's why we need the Lord. You don't want to... I, I laugh sometimes in a very not funny way, actually, when people say, well, I'm just going to go out and challenge the devil. You're an idiot. If that, you go out and you say, well, I'm just going to go take the devil on. You're, you're just dumb. He's crafty. He's wily. Can you defeat the foes that face you? Yes, but you do not want to go out and challenge the, the enemy uh, directly head on in some prideful way because he is powerful. He's able to give you a pounding like you can't imagine. So be careful to make sure that you do God's things God's way. The challenge that, that Israel faced uh, seemed to me, as you'll read these passages, to increase with each step. Anybody else found out that the Christian walk is a continual challenge and increase with each step? I have. I can tell you it has gotten harder and harder and longer, and the enemy's gotten stronger the long I've, longer I've walked on this earth. And, and I believe it will always be like that for us. Good news is, the Lord is up to the fight. Always. I may not be up to the fight, but the Lord's up to the fight, and that's why I want him fighting for me. And when you look at Jericho and Ai and the southern kings, they were smaller cities. As he goes to the north, they were larger cities, and in fact, they all massed together. And so the Lord is up to that challenge. And we need to, to realize that God is up to whatever challenge. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. Amen? He has also promised to prosper us wherever we go. Amen? He has also promised to fight the battle for us, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? So we need to let him fight the fight. 
We go do our part, but we don't try and do his part. Because each step, though it might increase with severe severity, it is also not too big for the Lord. But it can often be too big for us. When I take on things that are not for me, well, I, I can, Connie will testify, I'm a mess. When, when I pick up something that I'm not supposed to be carrying and I don't let the Lord have that part of the battle as he should, it's not good. Notice God's encouragement to Joshua in verse 6. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. I love that. Don't be afraid because of them. Now, Joshua had a practical reason to be afraid. Amen? This is a new attack. He's never faced a massive army like this. He's faced the five kings, but the five kings were kings of smaller cities. Be rather like the king of Running Springs and the king of Arrowbear getting together. It was more like that in the southern kingdom. But here in the north, you're talking about those who gathered together at Dan, one of the largest, it was actually the largest fortified Canaanite city. And the walls today, to this day, in places, are still 60 feet tall. This was a massive city, well fortified, extremely well defended. And Joshua's walking right up the middle of the Jordan Valley. Well, we'll just take them off. But he was doing it in the Lord's strength. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Would you please underline and note that? Notice it was God's plan that Joshua not take the weapons of the enemy. Don't pick up their weapons. You don't need them. This is a fight that I'm going to fight for you. You don't need to fight like they fight. You need to do what I tell you to do. You know, sometimes we look at our tax bills and we go, man, I'm going to do what everybody else does. I'm just going to tell them I only made 12 bucks this year. Now, maybe you guys don't think that way. When I look at my tax bill, I'm going to tell them I made 12 bucks. You know, it goes through my mind anyway. It would be pretty easy to pick up the world's ways of fighting things, Amen. I can't tell you how many Christians have gotten in trouble because they have lied on a mortgage application. I can't tell you how many Christians have gotten in trouble. They exaggerate their income. They, they kind of dumb down their debt a little bit. Oh, well, I just kind of forgot about that, you know, other thing. You know, I forgot about the alimony I'm paying or whatever. And they pick up the world's weapons, the way the world works, the way the world fights, and then they wonder why they're not winning anymore. They're losing. Because they didn't hobble the enemy's weapons. We don't do things the way the world does them. We need to trust God with everything. That includes things that maybe you think God wants you to have that thing, and, and you know, you go down, how many people have gotten into crazy car payments because they went down and, you know, just, oh, well, you know, I mean, if I tell them the truth, I won't get the .00475%. Well, the fact of the matter is, is they almost gave you the car you couldn't afford it, and so you end up in trouble. And the reason I'm saying this is so many Christians do this. They try and battle the world's way. Don't battle the world's way. The battle belongs to the Lord. The fight is his. Fight the way he wants you to fight. And that's with truth first and foremost. Amen? We are people of the truth. We are not people of the lie. We are people who are honorable and just. 
We are people who honor the Lord with all that we do. And so if you can't honor the Lord with how you fight the fight, then you're probably not fighting it God's way. Don't. You're going to hamstring the horses. You're going to burn their chariots with fire. In other words, don't use them. You see, I think that it was safe to say that there wasn't an issue of fear with Joshua and with the children of Israel. But fear is overcome with faith. Amen? Not picking up the tools of the enemy. Fear is overcome with faith, not picking up the tools of the enemy. And so notice what happens next. He attacks the northern armies and they're defeated. He does it God's way. He said, don't be afraid of them. Go do it. And whatever you find up there, don't get entangled in the affairs of the world. Verse 7 here in chapter 11. And so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram. And they attacked them, and the Lord, notice, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon. Now, to give you an idea, the city that they're talking about, the springs, the river of Maor, is just above the Sea of Galilee. When you look at where you find Sidon, it's actually on the coast in modern-day Lebanon. So they're going to chase them 35 miles away. They're like, uh uh-uh. We're going to finish this right here and right now. We're going to do what God asks us to do. To the brook at Mirispoth, to the valley of Mispoth, eastward they attacked them until there was none left of them remaining. And so Joshua did to them as the Lord told them, and he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. I want you to notice a couple of things that we can pick out of this. First and foremost, Joshua, all the people are there with them, and they suddenly come. They fought with boldness. They fought with boldness. They didn't, well, I kind of sort of think the Lord's for us. I kind of sort of want to pray. Maybe God can do this. They fought with boldness. They threw themselves headlong into harm's way because they believed what God had said. We as Christians need to do that. We need to headlong throw ourselves into the battle because God is for us. A lot of Christians sit on the sidelines. A lot of Christians are not engaged. A lot of Christians don't actually ever get involved in the battle because they're afraid. Well, if I do that, you know, then the attacks will increase. Yes, the attacks will increase, but our God who brought you through the first part will take you through the second part. It's a walk of faith. Boldness. He also used good strategy. So, you know, nowhere do we see that God told Joshua, well, stick your head in a box Take all of your brains and don't ever use your brains. Don't use reason. Don't use logic. Don't use any of your intellect. Just like a dumb brick, just, you know, if they're shooting arrows at you, just put your hands down and walk right at the arrows. You don't see that here. The inference is is that God is fighting for them that Joshua used good strategy. He thought about it. It's not one or the other. And a lot of Christians think that walking by faith is, well, you know, the Lord will just take care of it. If you're waiting for the Lord to pay your mortgage payment, you're probably going to be late. Okay? So the good strategy is there. You put money in the bank, and then you write a check, and you send it to the mortgage company. That's good strategy, okay? That's not a lack of faith on your part. That's you saying, look, the Lord has given me wisdom, the Lord's given me prudence, the Lord's given me understanding, the Lord's given me a job, the Lord's using these things in my life to take care of this area. We see Joshua doing that. 
He surprised them with an unsuspected ambush. In other words, he didn't go, well, you know, the Lord's for us, so you guys drop your shields, let's just prove it. We'll walk right down here and get shot up. He used strategy. So please don't be one of those Christians who just blindly leaps into things because God's called you to. Still use your head. Think about it. God very often will use some of those brain cells you got floating around to kind of confirm some of those things, and he'll speak to you in that way. Yes, she says, you know, hey, look, if you need wisdom, ask of it, who from God, he gives it liberally. Amen? James said that. also want to show you a second thing. Obedience, again, I know we hate that word. And so Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. Notice that there. There was obedience. Exactly, including something that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And let me show you why that's so true. There's a lesson here, because we can take up the devil's tools. We can pick up the things that are kind of left over as a remnant from the enemy working in the world. That's always a bad policy. In a, in a worldly battlefield, very often, you know, we'll collect weapons and all those kind of things on the battlefield. That's how ISIS has gotten all the stuff that they have. They've basically picked up all the garbage that's been left over from 10 years of fighting in the Middle East. They've got Soviet tanks. They've got, they've even got some U.S. tanks. They've got a whole bunch of our Humvees. You know why? Because our president said, we'll just leave it there. It'll be okay. There should be wisdom. There should be obedience. We need to do all that the Lord has commanded us. Many Christians don't hesitate to use the horses and chariots of the enemy. Don't do it. It's a bad plan. Leave them where they lay. Let the Lord provide the tools he wants for us. And those tools will always be sufficient for the job at hand. A third thing, Joshua fights with tremendous passion and tremendous commitment They attacked them until none of them were left remaining. He didn't get kind of into it and go, well, you know, looks like this one's over. We'll just give up. How many Christians don't reach their full potential in their walk with the Lord because they give up too soon? They just start kind of going off on their own track. I can tell you in in Kanye's own spiritual life, that was actually our story. You know, we were walking with the Lord when we got married. We got married in our Baptist church. We were absolutely walking with the Lord. But we're like, well, you know, we kind of heard that passage before. You're probably thinking that right now. Just in this and land the plane. You know, we kind of get like that. You know, we think, ah, we've heard that one before. I'll give you a little secret. You know, every once in a while, your kids tell me that you read ahead and you decided not to go to church because you know what's coming. In case you didn't know that, your kids talk about you. So be careful what you say in front of your kids. <laughs> but you read ahead, you know, maybe it's not a subject you like. And so, yeah, I'm just not going to go. I can't, I'm not going to learn anything from that. Be careful. Fight with passion. Fight with commitment. Because your kids are watching you to see how important church is to you. If church is not important to you, if prayer is not important to you, if studying God's word is not important to you, if putting on the armor of God is not important to you, you are leading your children in God being a very small portion of who they are. Fight with passion 
and fight with commitment. You need to be committed. Because the battle's still raging, folks. We ain't home yet. Victory's been won. Jesus sealed that on the cross. But we're still in the battle. Notice what he goes on to say now. The defeat of of Hazor occurs. The head of the northern kingdoms is taken uh, in these next verses. And Joshua turned back at that time in verse 10 and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And so now he's actually taken the principal city of that region. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them so that there was none left breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. You ever think, you know, hey, if you were a wanderer in the desert someplace and you came across and you're now in this lush river valley and there's a fortified city, wouldn't you be kind of tempted to just, well, maybe I'll just take that city? Again, see the obedience of Joshua. He says, look, this this place is cursed. You don't want any part of it. Be careful. So the cities of those kings and all their kings and Joshua took and slain them by the edge of the sword, for he utterly destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Remember, Moses said that when they got to the edge, but they failed to go in and do it. So again, you see the obedience where there was once disobedience. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except for Hazor only. And so the sacred places that the children of Israel were supposed to have They left so that they could inhabit them. So there were places that God had commanded them, these are going to be yours, keep them, and these are cities of the enemy, burn them. And he did exactly what he was told to do. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, and they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and left none breathing, as the Lord had commanded Moses the servant. And so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded them. Notice one thing from this passage. Completeness. Finish the job. Get it done. It, it's so interesting to me, you know, as I'm sharing with people, it's like you, you talk to them about their prayer life. You talk to them about their devotional life. You talk to them about their church attendance. You talk to them about, you know, their worship to the Lord. You talk to them about their giving. It's very often when they're weak, it's incomplete. They don't finish anything. It's like, well, you know, I'll go, I'll catch up next week. People will often tell me, well, and it's funny because people will come to me and they'll make excuses for why they weren't at church. I don't, there's, I have no book, I don't write your name down. There's no attendance taken, okay, so I don't know. And it's not that I don't care because I do care about you, but at the end of the day, if God's got something for you, then in Jesus' name go do it. And he may well. You're not under bondage. But by the same token... You need to be completing things. You, you need to be faithful in that completion. It's just like, look, I, it's like we have this problem all the time with children's ministry. Well, I want to be involved in children's ministry, but I want to work three Sundays a year. That ain't going to work. That's not dedication. That's not completeness. That's not, you know, Jerry shows up, you know, every other Sunday, so we don't have anybody doing sound. You know, Richard back there fiddling with the computers. He comes in, he kind of sort of gets him so he's running, and then he, he walks away. No, he completed the task. It's functioning. It's working. It's 100%. Completeness is important in our lives. We need to do what God asks us to do all the way to the end of what he's told us to do. All the way to the end. Don't stop short. 
And now Israel ends up secure in the land of Canaan. Notice, pick it up in verse 16. And thus Joshua took all of this land, the mountain country, all of the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel, and its lowlands, from Mount Helak, as far as Seir, to Baal God in the valley of Lebanon, uh, below Mount Hermon, below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. And Joshua made war a long time. That long time is highly likely in the neighborhood, very close to seven years. And there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites and the inhabitants of Gibeon. Now, again, we know why that happened. Joshua had to make good. He'd sworn an oath to the Lord, so he has the Gibeonites working for them as woodcutters and carriers of water. All the others they took in battle, for it was as the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we have again a picture of how the Lord works in his sovereign plan. We don't know why God hardens hearts, but God does harden hearts towards those who have a hard heart towards him. God meets that hardening that you already have in essence. So if you're one of those people that says, I don't care what God thinks, God will ingrain that to such an extent that you actually become God's enemy. And just say, if that's what you want, that's what you get. So never underestimate the power of someone to refuse the gospel message to do great damage to them spiritually. You can only reject the gospel so many times and God says that's enough. You can only reject the Lord so many times and God said that's enough. And he just then honors your decision and says, look, your heart now is hard. And you're going to continue to go that way. And so that you don't take anybody with you, you're now battling me. You're battling the Lord. God gives them over to sin. Read, read Romans chapter 1. You'll see exactly what's talked about there. And God gave them over to a debased mind to dishonor their own bodies amongst themselves. You see, you get the picture. That's why when people are caught in heinous, radical sin and they continue in it for a long period of time, eventually there's no escape for them. Because they hardened their heart and God said, I don't want you taking anybody with you, so I'm going to harden it to the extent that you are not in the picture anymore. It's a bad thing. Don't get caught up in that place. It's an ugly place to be. And also, as you look at this, I think it's important to not take it farther than it says. And God, I know, deals with the hearts of individual men. He always has, always will. Remember what he said about even Sodom. Look, if there's, if there's a handful of people left, we, yep, I'll spare them. I don't think God's ever changed his position on individual responsibility. But I do think that when people get engaged in groups, they end up with a corporate penalty very often. That's why you want to be careful who you associate with. You don't want to be hanging out. It's tough to fly with eagles when you hang out with turkeys, amen? And finally, the Anakim here are defeated. And at that time, Joshua came out and cut off the Anakim for all, from all the mountains of Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them in their cities, and none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod. Exactly where Goliath came from. And so the only people that were left of that particular race of people, the only giants that were left in the land, 
we're in the exact region that we'll go on some 500 years later and say, ah, that's where they came from. So Joshua comes out, he cuts them off. It's interesting to me, too, that the last enemy defeated is also the strongest. That's the way God works in our lives. That's why I always encourage people who are young in the Lord, be careful about what you commit to young in your walk with the Lord, because I've seen an awful lot of people not ready for the battle that they undertake, and they go in and try and fight the giants first. Let God do some little works in your life before he reveals the giants, because if you go after the giants first, chances are you're going to be less than successful. We have to allow God to manage the battles that we're in. And very often we're convinced that we need to go out and fight the, the Anakim, if you will, in our own lives. And in fact, that's not the way it normally works. By the time we get to First Samuel, we're going to find that little David is able to fight big Goliath because little David has the type of faith that's been developed for the last 500 years in the children of Israel. He's been sitting around watching God do great and mighty things in the land. And now he's, look, I'll go fight him. Because he was ready. And he wasn't ready by the hand of man. He was ready by the hand of God. Amen? He was, he was, the, lunch, he was the lunch boy for the rest of the family, let's face it. But as far as God was concerned, he'd been getting prepared for his whole life. And then notice the completeness of the victory here. <clears throat> and so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord God had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it over as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions and to their tribes. And the land rested from war. And so the war's over. Each tribe is going to go in now and possess, and we'll get some wonderful spiritual lessons in that part. But really, the chapter 12 is nothing but a list of the conquered kings. And so there's a handful of things that we can get here, and I think we can make it through it uh, as we move through chapter 12. And these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated. So this is a list, basically, of the leaders that have already been taken care of in these battles. So as he lists, now he's going to actually name them by name. Somewhat important, especially to the children of Israel. Because if you know anything about the children of Israel, when you listen to them talk, they will recount their own generations for generations. They will look at the history of where they have lived and who has been in the land and who has taken the land because the land is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Amen? And so it's God's land. Joel chapter 3 tells us that it's God's land. He gave it to the children of Israel. It is now their land to possess. It's not their land to own. It's their land to possess. And so it's important that these kings are named so that when someone says, hey, well, you didn't get this guy. Oh, yes, we did. And he was in the land, and we took care of him too. And so these are the kings they were defeated, whose land was possessed on the other side of the Jordan towards the rising sun. And so now he's going to move over uh, on onto the eastern plain, which is now modern-day Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Herbin, and all of the eastern Jordan plain. So the Jordan River runs down through the middle of the Jordan, the, actually the African Rift Valley. The Jordan River is in the middle of it. It goes all the way down to the middle of Africa. And so if you look at that valley now, the eastern side, that would be modern-day Jordan. And so these are the Moabites, chiefly. And so these kings have also been destroyed. And so the defeat of the king of Sihon comes next. And one uh, king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, who ruled over Gilead from Aor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, in the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabok. So these are all in modern-day Jordan. 
which is the border of the Ammonites on the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chenareth as far as the Sea of Arabah. That's the Salt Sea. That's also called the Dead Sea to this day. Uh, the, the road to Beth Jamath and southward towards the slope of Pigsaw. And then he goes on to say, and the other king was Og, the king of Bashan, in his territory, who was the remnant of the giants. So here's another one of the Anakin who were wiped out, who dwelt in Ashtaroth at Eredeti, uh, who reigned over Mount Hermon, over Sakla. So that would be modern-day Syria, over all of Bashan, also modern-day Syria, as far as the border of the uh, Geshurites and the Macarites, over half of Gilead, the, the border of Sihon, the king of Hezbron. And so Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. Uh, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession uh, to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so, remember, they dwelt also on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And so then the next set of verses, these are the kings that were defeated by Joshua. And so, again, you can kind of see the kings that were defeated by Moses first, uh, and then the kings that were defeated by Joshua come along next. Uh, it's a broad description of the lands of the Canaanite regions is all that's in here. And so he goes on, these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on, on this side of the Jordan. So they were on the eastern side. Moses took care of that. He's on the, on the western side, which is in modern-day Israel. The west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak, the ascent of Seir. So that's all the way up in the, the southern reaches of Lebanon, modern Lebanon today. Uh, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions in the mountain country, in the lowlands, and the Jordan plain. So as you look at modern-day Syria, which would be to the east, and modern-day Lebanon, which would be to the west, and all of this is to the north end of modern-day Israel, it includes mountain regions in both places, it includes a valley in both places, and it includes a river plain in both places. So there's a little bit of river plain in Lebanon. There's a little bit of river plain in modern-day Syria. They come down and meet in the Jordan River Valley. And so all of that area was conquered and all of the kings. And so Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their division. So if you go there today, what you're going to find in those very same mountains, all kinds of intelligence posts, virtually every mountaintop has an Israeli intelligence command post on the top of it. Uh, there are military installations everywhere. That region is all relatively inhabited to this day uh, by the Jewish people. However, those are the contested Golan Heights. So when you hear of the Golan Heights, that is an area that Joshua conquered that in 1967 was retaken. You remember that in 1967, the Israeli Defense Forces went all the way to the gates of Damascus. They nearly took the city of Damascus, which is inside the Syrian border, by almost 100 miles. That was all given back. What happened? They're still fighting over that land today because it was supposed to be kept by Israel. And they gave it away. On its slopes in the wilderness to the south, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This seems tedious to us because it's not our land. Amen? You think about it, it's not like, well, you know, it's to, the, it's to where the water tanks are on Knob Hill. You know, we, we would get that. You know, it's over to where the, the meteorological tower is by Hoffman Elementary. We would understand that. It's the big mountain down there with the R on it. We would get that. Well, it's over by Mount San Gorgonio or Mount San Jacinto. We would get that. But for the Jewish people, 
they can look at this passage of Scripture and go, it's that mountain right there. And the Syrians are on it right now. No wonder we've got problems. It's that mountain right over, it's that river, that's the Jabok, it's the Jabok, that's over in Jordan, we're supposed to own that. So what do they do? They fight over it to this day. And now we have 31 kings, we're going to try, we're going to try, we're going to get this done. Because I don't want to do this again this week. <laughs> and the king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is besides Bethel, won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmoth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Debir won. In other words, each of them had a king. Each one of them was taken and done away with. The king of Gader won. The king of Hormoth. The king of Arad. The king of Libna. The king of Abdullam. The king of Macdeca. The king of Bethel. The king of Tupa. The king of Hefer the king of Aphek, the king of Lashron, the king of Madon, the king of Hazor, the king of Shimron Maron, the king of Ashpath, the king of Tekna, the king of Megiddo, very important city, amen? That one's going to come back in the very last days. It was also Zerubbabel lived there. There, Many of the kings of Israel dwelt in the, in the city of Megiddo. One of the king of Kadesh, one the king of Jekrim, uh, in Carmel, so that's up in the mountains of Carmel, one the king of Deor in the heights of Deor, one the king of the people of Gilgal, and one the king of Tizra. All of the kings were 31. And so the reason these are here is you could go back through Jewish history and you could then look at all these kings and go, that dude was a real people. This happened in real time, in real space. These were real people that they could look back on and go, I know that guy. That's who was actually the king of that region. And so that oral history being passed on to the rest of the Jewish people, they could recount those things and say, look, it's clear what happened here. Israel might well remember all the things that God had done for them by reading this passage of Scripture. And so as they were fighting there in the Valley of Oz and in the 72 war and all those tanks are coming down from Syria, over 10,000 of them ultimately. And a handful of Israeli centurion tanks enter that valley. God won that battle too. Far outweighed by the advancing Syrian forces. And yet Israel won. It's God's land. He gave it to Israel. He gave them the victory. They're supposed to be in it today. Amen? One day, God's going to make it all happen again. Father, thanks for this time tonight. Thanks for the patience, again, of your people, these difficult, somewhat tedious passages for us. And God, we're grateful for the spiritual truths that are held in them. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, today there are two mosques that sit on that temple mount that one day you, Jesus, will put your feet on. And so, God, we look forward to that day. In the meantime, help us to fight the good fight with only your weapons. Lord, help us to fight the fight of faith. We love you. We thank you. We bless you. All God's people said, Amen.